I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, and the passage we'll be looking at this morning begins in verse 13 and continues through verse 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Please give your full attention to God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We ordered a new sign for out in front of the church this week as part of our building project. And as we were doing that, it reminded me of a story I heard about a church. Once a new church, built a shiny new church building, and put a big sign out in front of the building had it, the name of the church and the times of the services. And at the bottom, it had, it had those replaceable letters, you know, to put at the bottom the motto, Jesus only. Well, as time passed and as the church went along after many years, it started to drift doctrinally from its foundation and began to struggle spiritually began to decline in numbers and different ministries. And as often happens when a church goes through a period of decline like that, the, the congregation stops caring so much and caring for its property. And one thing that happened on the sign is after one, one day somebody walked by and noticed that the J on the Jesus in the motto had fallen off. And so it said, Jesus only, but didn't do anything about it. Another couple months went by and the E fell off, and so nobody did anything about it. It wasn't until the S fell off that they realized that the motto on the sign in the church was saying something all too prophetic, us only, us only. We've been building a church building over the past year but we've not been building the church. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is building his church. He says in this passage, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I praise God that in this ministry, it's not us only. 
The Lord is with us. And so long as the Lord is with us, he will build his church. For almost 2,000 years, or well, for more than 2,000 years, the Lord has kept this promise to build his church. Even in the worst of times, in many ways, especially in the worst of times, he has built his church for two millennia. There's always been a faithful remnant of people who serve Christ as King and Lord on this planet until Christ comes again. That will be the case. The church began with 12 disciples cowering in fear in an upper room. But today, Operation World is a worldwide prayer ministry that they came out with an estimate of how many evangelical Christians there are in the world today, those who profess the evangelical faith, the Bible-believing faith in Christ. Their estimate is 550 million in the world. If we were all to come together and become a political nation of professing evangelical Christians, we would be the third largest nation in the world behind India and China. Christ is continuing to build his church. But no individual congregation or denomination has any promise or guarantee that that church will always prosper, that, that that church or that denomination, that congregation or that denomination will persevere. There is no promise of that. So how can we be sure that Christ will continue to build this church? How can we be sure of that as we look to the future? In this passage, Jesus is making an important turn in his ministry. Up until this point, his focus has largely been upon the crowds as he has performed spectacular miracles, as he has taught with great unimaginable wisdom. But here in this passage, in chapter 16 of Matthew, he begins to turn his focus towards his disciples. These 12 men that have been following him for most of these three years. And he begins to prepare them for what's to come. To prepare them for him being arrested and nailed to a cross, being raised from the dead. To prepare them for the day of Pentecost when they will carry on the work of the kingdom of God on earth. But as he's beginning to prepare them for all of this, he starts with the most important lesson, which is about who he is and about his mission. If the church doesn't get that information right, then it will fail. Who Christ is and what he came to do. In verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples an unusual question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course, Son of Man was one of his favorite titles for himself. So he's saying, who are the people saying that I am? Maybe in a way that we would be more familiar with today, he's asking his disciples, what are the polls saying about me? What's, what's the popular opinion about me out there? It's interesting to me that the disciples respond with positive portrayals of Christ out in the public, out among the people. They don't mention the negative ones, and we know just recently in the, book, in the gospel according to Matthew that 
the religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were calling, many of them were calling Jesus Beelzebub, saying that his ministry is a, was of Satan. They don't mention that, I suppose. They just didn't want to, uh, to disappoint Jesus, I suppose. Not that he didn't know all that. But what they list for him are several interesting names, positive figures, obviously, the general view of Christ among the people was positive, but yet wrong, as is often the case, and is still the case. They said, people are saying that you're John the Baptist, or that you're Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Now, it's hard to understand why people would be saying that. Let me be clear, the Jewish people did not believe in reincarnation like current Eastern religions believe in reincarnation, that people could come back in a different form or whatever. But they did believe, as we believe, that people live beyond death. The soul outlives the body. When the body dies, the soul goes on. And so they believed that many of the Jews, not basing it particularly on any scripture, but they believed that it is possible before God sent his Messiah, and that was the hope of the Old Testament saints, before God would send his Messiah, he would send some prophet to prepare the way. And so that's why John the Baptist is mentioned as a possibility because we know that Herod had just executed John. And matter of fact, Herod feared. Matter of fact, remember when Herod was told about the ministry of Jesus and the great things that he was doing, he said, oh no, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Elijah is an interesting name because Elijah did not actually physically die. He was taken directly to heaven and all kinds of mystery there. But it would explain why the Jewish people thought, well, maybe since he didn't die physically, maybe he will come back before the Messiah comes. Or maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But the idea was that God is going to send somebody special, a prophet, to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And this must be who Jesus is. All very positive images, but they're all wrong. They all saw him as still human. They saw him as a prophet, like Muslims today see Jesus as a prophet. None of them, none of the popular opinions saw him as the Messiah, the promise of the whole old covenant. And don't be mistaken, Jesus is not like an insecure politician here checking the opinion polls. He knows who he is. He's very confident in who he is. As someone once said to me, Jesus doesn't require your faith in order for him to exist. What Jesus is doing is leading the disciples progressively step by step in deepening their faith in him and their understanding of who he is so that they might trust him more. And so he says, okay, enough of what other people are saying. They're all wrong. But who do you, you say that I am? And that word you in the original Greek is emphasized. Who do you say that I am? It's not surprising that Peter would speak up. Peter was the rash one. Peter was the gregarious one, the outspoken one, the, the guy who was kind of, kind of had uh, control issues, liked to be out there in front of everything. So Peter makes his profession here. 
And it's interesting how you think about how Peter's faith grew. When he first encountered Christ, remember that Christ met him and gave him a miraculous catch of fish while he was out fishing. Remember how Peter responded to that revelation of who Jesus was? He says, depart from me. Go away, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be in your presence. That fear of the glory of Christ was his first reaction, but certainly not a full faith in who Christ truly was. In John chapter 6, it tells how after Christ had fed the 5,000 plus with a few bread and a few fish, Remember that people were wanting to make Jesus king, but then he taught them about what real discipleship looked like and everybody decided to go away. And he said, are you going to go away too? And it was Peter who spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, his faith is growing. He's trusting in what Christ is teaching him about God, the Father, about himself and about his mission. When Jesus walked on the waters of the Sea of Galilee, Remember how Peter and the other apostles, they fell down at his feet and they worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Their view of his glory is getting greater. Their understanding of who he is and what he had come to do is getting greater, but still not quite there yet. And so here, Jesus challenges Peter and the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To say that he was the son of the living God wasn't new. Again, Peter and the other apostles had said that on the Sea of Galilee, that he was the son of God. But I think he's starting to understand what that phrase means. I don't think Peter or any of the disciples had a fully comprehensive and nuanced understanding of the Trinity at this point. I don't have that. You don't have that. But they're beginning to see that there's something uniquely even divine about Christ that he had a very special and unique relationship to God, the Father, that he didn't fully understand. But what is new in this confession that is so important is that he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that was promised to Adam when Adam was cast out of the garden because of his rebellion and sin. The one who was promised to God's people that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. You are the Messiah that was promised to Abraham, the Messiah that was promised to Moses, the Messiah that was promised to David, the one who would become our great high priest to bring us to God, to reconcile us to our holy God as sinners, that he would be the prophet who would reveal God the Father fully to us and perfectly, that he would be the eternal king who would sit on the throne of David and reign over the kingdom of God forever. The hope of all the covenants. The hope of every saint of the old covenant, of the Old Testament. The one who would bring sinner and a holy God together and give us eternal life. Peter says, you are the Christ. The one that all of the scriptures that have been given to us so far point to. And Jesus responds to Peter's confession of faith by saying, you are blessed, Peter. You're blessed. How have you been blessed? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. You hear what he's saying to Peter. Saying, Peter, we talked about everybody else's opinions about me. 
realize, Peter, that your opinion of me is the same as the Father's opinion of me. And that's the only opinion you need to care about. Block out everybody else's opinion of who I am. It's what my Father says about who I am that matters. And you agree with my Father. You are blessed. You see, this is ultimately why only Jesus Christ can build his church because no sinner, no flesh and blood, nobody in this fallen state can believe who Jesus is, accept who Jesus is, follow Jesus and worship Jesus. No one can do it unless the Spirit first draw him. Unless the Holy Spirit sent by Christ takes away the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, opens our blind spiritual eyes, opens our, blind, our, our, our dumb spiritual ears so that we can see, understand, believe, and trust in the Father's Messiah. That's why Christ has to build his church. And the important thing to point out here is that faith is only as good as its object. Faith is useless unless it is secured to the true Christ that's revealed in God's word. We hear a lot about faith, people's faith being important to them. But faith in something that is false is totally useless. You must have faith in the true Christ, the biblical Christ, the Christ that God has revealed from heaven. He is objectively, historically, theologically absolute and certain. Jesus Christ is real, he is alive, and he is Lord. We live in an age that despises absolutes and despises certainty. But there can be no faith without the source of that faith, without the object of that faith. Many churches, many churches today reject what God's word has revealed about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Now, don't go to their websites to find out that they've rejected these truths because they don't have the guts to put it on their website, what they really believe, what they've really rejected about Scripture. Those churches are not just declining. Those churches are dead if they're not preaching the biblical Christ. There are a lot of other churches that have a true statement of faith, good, solid, biblical statement of faith on their website, and they believe it. They give lip service to it. But when you worship with them, when you fellowship with them, when you study with them, you find that Christ is not the focus of the preaching, the teaching, or the living of that church. He's tacked on to a very man-centered worldview. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of Scripture. Haddon Robinson was a great a uh, professor, great uh, trainer of preachers, a, a professor in seminary out west. One of his famous quotes was this. He said, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it'll be a fog in the pews. If it's a mist in the pulpit, it'll be a fog in the pews. I would go a step further and say, if it's a fog in the pulpit, it's going to be darkness in the pews. And if it's darkness in the pulpit, Lord have mercy. 
There is no church without a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And the true church, the healthy church, the strong church, preaches Christ and him crucified. Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17, an Old Testament prophecy written 800 years before Christ. It says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. That is one of the most often quoted Old Testament prophecies of the coming Christ. And it's repeated again and again in the New Testament. And it's made very clear that this chief cornerstone laid by the Father is Jesus Christ himself. A cornerstone isn't as important in building today as it used to be. We've got more better technology, better equipment. Cornerstones we tend to associate with the date that's engraved on them or the time capsule that's put inside of them, some ceremonial purpose. But back in the first century, when you build a building, a stone building, the cornerstone was the key to the whole building. It determined the location of the building. It determined the angle of the walls. It, de it determined the uh, makeup of every stone that was placed in that building after it was placed first. You would measure every stone according to the dimensions of the cornerstone, its height, its width, its depth. That would determine what the other measurements of the other stones were to be. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Every part of its building is based upon him as the standard. The source of a church's health and strength is clear teaching and preaching about who Jesus Christ is according to God's word and what he was sent to do, his person and his mission. That's the cornerstone of a growing, healthy, vibrant, spirit-dwelt church. But don't get me wrong, just believing the right things and saying the right things is not enough. Where is your heart? It's about the church loving this Christ. I know a lot of orthodox, very biblically sound churches that are also spiritually very dead because they believe the right things, but they don't love Christ. How do you love Christ? It's not about the warm, fuzzy feelings you get during singing. It's not about the vibrations you feel up and down your spine in a moment of insight. These things are all fine. But Jesus taught us how to love him. How to love him is to hear his word, receive his word, trust his word, and then obey his word. That's how you love Christ. Hear his word, Receive his word, trust his word, and obey his word. That's how you love Christ. And a church that loves the biblical Christ is a church that will be healthy and strong and vibrant and impactful. But then Christ takes it to another step. And I'm always fascinated that he's, he's making sure that this church that he's about to build is established upon himself as the cornerstone. But then he adds another element that is necessary for spiritual health and growth, and that's Christ-like leaders. Verse 18, Jesus says, 
to Peter, who's just made this profound, insightful confession of faith. He says to Peter, you are Peter, and his name meant rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's been a debate for 2,000 years about what Jesus actually meant by that. What's the rock that Jesus is referring to? Is it referring to Peter himself, or is it referring to his confession of faith? Yes. You can't separate Peter's confession of faith from him. Peter's confession of faith was his new identity. The rock that Jesus is referring to is both Peter and his confession of faith. Clearly, Jesus is talking to Peter himself as an individual, first of all. Peter was a leader among the apostles. Already during Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter was the one who always stepped forward, the one who was always at the front lines, the always first one to respond. He was the one the other apostles looked to because of his natural gifting and personality and the, and, and the way the Lord was working in his life. He was the first, Peter was the first to stand up on the day of Pentecost, on the day in which the church was born, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, it was Peter who stood up and preached Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. It was Peter who was the point man in the book of Acts for the church in Jerusalem as the church got started. It was Peter who was the one who was looked to as the point man among the apostles. There is a very real sense in which Peter was the rock, the leader of the early church. And in verse 19, lest there be any doubt about the right interpretation, in verse 19, when Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The you there, in English, you don't know whether it's singular or plural. Is he talking to Peter or is he talking to all the, the apostles? In the Greek, it's singular. He's talking to Peter. You, Peter, will be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, all you Presbyterians can stop squirming in your seat now because what I also believe is that he wasn't talking to Peter only. He was not talking to Peter uniquely. That Peter was the representative of the apostles. And the authority that Jesus is giving to Peter here, the keys to the kingdom, he's giving to all the apostles. And that plays out clearly, not just in the book of Acts, but also here even in the gospel according to Matthew. The authority that Peter was given was not greater than the other apostles. They shared this authority. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, when you hand somebody the keys to something, you're delegating them authority. And this delegated authority from Christ is the privilege of being called upon by Christ to admit, to, to bind or to loose, or you should translate that to admit or to dismiss, to admit or to refuse admission to the kingdom of God. And that authority, as you see it played out in the book of Acts, is first and foremost the preaching of the gospel. That when the apostles preach Christ crucified and Christ raised from the dead, they are giving an open invitation to sinners to come 
to God through Christ. They are admitting people to the kingdom by permission of Christ. They are opening the door through Christ to come into the kingdom. But if somebody comes through that door but then denies Christ and refuses to repent of their sin and live in obedience to Christ, refuses to follow Christ, then these same leaders in the early church were given the authority to close the door of the kingdom, to excommunicate, to cast out those who deny Christ by profession or by their lifestyle. It's what we call church discipline. And just to show that this key, the keys to the kingdom were not only handed to Peter, but to all the apostles, you only have to go back to or go forward to chapter 18. And we have that classic passage that talks about biblical church discipline. And listen carefully to what Jesus says to his disciples. If your brothers, this is verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is the process we call church discipline. Somebody is unrepentant in their sin against you, you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, you take somebody else to them as a second level of discipline. The, third, the, the official church discipline kicks in when you tell it to the church and the leadership of the church confronts that person for their unrepentant sin. And if they refuse at that point to listen to the church, to repent of their sin, then they are excommunicated. They are barred from the Lord's table. They are no longer considered members of Christ's church or part of God's kingdom. But notice what Jesus says next in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The same exact thing that he said to Peter in our passage today. All of the leaders of the church, those who are called by Christ, in that day it was the apostles with their unique authority as apostles, but to this day all those who are called to lead God's people as shepherds of his flock are given the keys to admit by baptism and profession of faith into the church or to excommunicate those who deny Christ by what they say and or how they live. Can the church leadership, could the apostles have made a mistake? Could the current church leadership make a mistake either in admitting someone who's not truly a follower of Christ or excommunicating somebody who is truly a follower of Christ and, and truly in submission to Christ. Yes, clearly we are sinners. These mistakes can happen. Matter of fact, in Jesus' own day, the leaders of the church of that day, the sinful leadership of the Jewish church, they cast out the man who was born blind but was healed by Christ. They cast him out of the fellowship of the church. But Jesus met him and received him because they had cast him out for believing in Christ, not rejecting Christ. Scripture makes it clear that the apostles were the foundation of the church that was built around Christ as the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Christ established the apostles who gave us the revelation of who Jesus is and what he had come to do and explained how that impacts us. That's the foundation of the church. It's what we call, it's summarized by the Apostles' Creed. The teaching of the apostles. The apostolic doctrine is the foundation of the church and it's focused upon Christ as the cornerstone. Jesus said this about what the apostles taught us about who he is and what he came to do in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it because it was not built on the rock. You see, ultimately in scripture, the rock is Christ. Not Peter, not any of the apostles. The rock is Christ. And they become part of the foundation as they become Christ-like leaders, following and submitting fully to his authority. Christ builds his church primarily through humble, godly, Christ-like leaders. Christ-like leaders who teach and preach and rule and discipline by the authority of God's word and God's word alone. Paul describes this process over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Christ built the church, he's saying. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Father has laid the cornerstone. Christ is the rock, the foundation upon which the church is built. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. In the coming weeks, we're gonna be preaching to you about the vision of this church, our plans for the future, how we're going to, by God's grace and enabling, build a stronger, healthier ministry in the years to come. And we will talk about some of the core values of this ministry, things that we are committed to, to reaching those goals. Things like biblical discipleship, biblical worship, biblical hospitality, biblical outreach. And we're gonna talk about a lot of things that we could do to improve, have better administration, better communication, better children's ministry, better youth ministry, better outreach programs. We'll talk about those things. And there's, those are all good and necessary things, but they are not ultimate. 
The only thing we need to be sure about in order to have a healthy, growing, impactful ministry through this congregation is to make sure that Christ is the cornerstone. Apostolic teaching about Christ and his mission are the foundation and that our leaders are humble, godly men striving by the authority of Christ to build in his name and to his glory. All the rest of that stuff is window dressing compared to the importance of that. I guarantee you that Christ will grow and bless this church if we keep him as the focus and the gospel as the center of all that we do. That doesn't mean we're not gonna struggle. That doesn't mean we're not gonna, that we're not gonna face hard times. But I'll guarantee you that if we keep that focus, the hard times will only make us grow more, will only make us depend upon the Lord more, will only make us conform us by, as by fire refining gold into his image more. We just need the truth about Christ and godly, humble leaders who keep that truth in front of us at all times and at the center of all that we do. This past week, a very brave 20-year-old young man passed away after a four-year battle with cancer. His name was Tyler Trent, and I'm sure many of you heard of him. Tyler Trent um, became famous. He got his 15 minutes of fame before he died because he was a huge fan of the Purdue University football team, and he made a prediction which got broadcast on ESPN and around the world that Purdue, lowly Purdue, would beat the mighty Ohio State University in a football game this past year, and they did. And as a result of that, all kinds of media given him a platform to talk about, you know, what inspires him, and, and uh, people around him, friends, family members, the football team, everybody that knew him, kept saying what a, not only what a great guy he was, but what a strong guy he was. And if, if you saw any pictures of him, there was nothing about what you saw in his physical makeup that, that communicated strength. He was frail, weak, skinny, confined to a wheelchair. But a couple days ago, his pastor put a eulogy to Tyler Trent on the Gospel Coalition website. And this is just a paragraph of what he said in that eulogy. The gravitational pull of Tyler's winsome spirit, his interest in others, and his unflappable courage attracted fans from all walks of life. It wasn't hard to enter Tyler's orbit. People marveled at his attitude and wondered, how is he so strong? How is he so strong? As Tyler's pastor for 10 years, I can tell you, it's simple but profound. Tyler loved Jesus. That's it. And it made him strong. He loved Jesus. In that eulogy he talked about on the door in his hospital, it had one of those kind of opaque glass windows in, the, in his room, in the door to his room. And on it, he, with marker, wrote these words so that anybody passing by or anybody passing through that door would read them. It said this, God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves, Jesus is my life.
that would be a good motto to put on a church sign and to make sure the letters stay there. We don't have a we don't have an LED sign coming. We don't have interchangeable letters on our sign. But if we did, that would be a good thing to put on there. Or maybe more biblically, we preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Let me close with these famous words from J.C. Ryle. He wrote, Nothing can altogether overthrow or destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world, and it will break many a hammer still. Or as the Apostle Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes, for opening our ears, changing our hearts so that we might see who Christ is and what he has come to do for us. Father, let us never lose sight of that as the focus of our lives as individual followers of Christ and as a congregation of people committed to him. Father, make us strong and healthy and vibrant and impactful in our community through the power of Christ and his gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen.